We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome into another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show here on MPW Digital. I'm Neil McCready, joined, as you might expect, by the chair of economics at the University of Mississippi, Josh Hendrickson. Josh, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. All right. I told you earlier today I'm a little fired up today. Um, I've, I've got stuff got stuff on my mind. Politically, I got, got called out on the X machine, the Twitter machine, for defending Trevor Bauer, for defending himself against what turned out to be an bogus allegation that ruined his baseball career how that makes me on his side i'm like well is there another side really that's the least of our problems trevor can handle himself he's probably going to win some money here i was talking to you about this and you don't even know where i'm going with this i just told you hey there's like four things i want to touch on i was looking at video in new york today i haven't been to new york in a long time Maybe the video doesn't really represent itself. Maybe it does. But I'm sure you've heard there's been a lot of uh, illegal immigration that has impacted New York City. And apparently at at least one of the major former luxury luxury hotels in New York, if you've ever been to Manhattan back in the day, you, the, you, you would see the luxury hotels and the people were touristy and or on business or whatnot. It was bustling, but it was exciting and had a pulse new york always had a pulse to it i always liked that and it maybe it still does i don't know i'm not there but they have immigrants illegal immigrants in this luxury hotel and someone was trying to film the hotel and they were security was coming out saying you can't film from the streets and the police came out and said yes he can film leave him alone but my question is this if we're filling up hotels with immigrants who don't have any money except the money that we're giving them when they come across the border along with phones and everything else. How the hell does that work economically? How does that work for the hotel, which I'm guessing has built a budget around having tourists and business people and vacationers and whatnot coming and staying in a luxury hotel, probably in a trip that they've saved up for and planned for and been excited about and you know, we're going to see New York and going to go to Broadway and going to go see the, the, the Statue of Liberty and maybe going to go see the Mets or the Yankees or the, the whatever. You know what I'm getting at. How does that work when immigrants are filling up the hotel, which means you can't have guests in the hotel? Uh, your, your four and five star restaurants inside the hotel are no longer uh, functioning the way that they're designed to function. This is happening all over our country. Best I can tell. I saw where the, some of the hotels that were being used or saved for the Army-Navy game later this year, the big contest between the Army and the Navy, which is uh, a massive event each and every year. They're kicking people out of those hotel rooms so that immigrants can have the rooms at hotels, at holiday inns, at everything else. I'm not a smart man. You are. How the hell does that work? There's so many aspects to this. Um, part one is we seem to live in a society where people can't sell, can't separate like moral and political positions uh, from the law. And what I mean by that is, is there's a ton of people who just appeal to your sympathy and they say, look, these people are coming from horrible circumstances and they're just coming to the United States because they, they want a better life and 
you know, of course we should let them in. Why shouldn't we let them in? We're the richest country in the world. and We're, we're the land of opportunity. Yep. Let them come here and make their life. And, you know, we're the land of immigrants and, you know, they'll, they'll make a life for themselves. And in 30 years, we'll be glad that they came. That's fine as a moral argument. Sure. But it's a moral argument. And that moral argument has to wrestle with the law. And for essentially, you know, since we've had borders on countries, countries have typically prevented people who don't live within those borders from coming into those borders without some kind of permission or without some sort of vetting system or, or whatever. The a work visa or whatever, usually with an expiration date. Yeah, and so what happens in this debate all the time is if people complain about this, what they say is, well, you're anti-immigration. And then people will say, well, actually, I'm pro-immigration. I'm anti-illegal immigration or I'm anti-people sneaking into the country or, or whatever. Sure. And but, but that's somehow conflated with being anti-immigration. Well, here's... Here's the fundamental problem is that you can feel sorry for people and you should and you can want them want to allow more people into this country. But it's easy to do that. You pass a law that essentially says we're going to allow more people into the country and, you know, under the following circumstances, we're going to we're going to make it easier for you to come to the United States. Um, they can't get that done legally. And so it seems to that the solution is. Well, we'll just let people in and then, you know, that solves that that solves that problem is that even, you know, like they're just coming across the border and what are we going to do? Right now it becomes a a moral issue. Are we going to like send these people back to the terrible place that they came from or are we going to let them stay here? And I think that that so much of this, so much of this completely misses the point. And it's that it's about you have to have rule of law. So if you have laws, uh, you have to have rule of law. You, we do not want rule of men. That's what kings and queens were about. That was, that's the whole point of having a constitutional system. That's the entire point of having uh, something like uh, democracy and, and a constitution is that you have these laws, you have these rules, and that this is how you, this is how you govern, this is how you operate. And, it doesn't matter what any given person's opinion is. This is the law. Um, they've they've kind of abandoned that. So that's one aspect of it is that um, you have people who are making a moral argument for why this is fine, even though it's against the law to do what many of these people are doing. Now, some of them claim asylum and things like that, and so it gets to be like a murky area. But like these these are if the numbers that are being reported are correct, they can't all be asylum seekers. And so, so that's one aspect. Okay. The, the other aspect is the economic aspect. And the economic aspect is complicated. And it's complicated for the following reason. Number one, like all else equal, if you just bring in a bunch of uh, immigrants, there's more workers. And if there's more workers, that means lower wages. But it's not as simple as that because those immigrants earning those wages also have demands for goods and services. And so... Uh, they might be competing with you for your job, but then they're also buying things which can possibly create new jobs or, you know, there could be like a re- reallocation of labor uh, and you can actually get net new jobs. Okay. And there's there's some de- and there's some debate about this. So like there's a fi- there's a, the uh, the famous incident of the Mariel boat lift where Fidel Castro just sent a bunch of Cubans to Miami on a boat. And uh, and people have studied this and in economics They've generally found that this didn't affect workers uh, negatively in Miami when all of these Cubans arrived. But there are some papers that suggest that, like, well, actually, if you were at the lower end of the wage distribution, like, you actually saw a lot more competition and your wages might have gone down. Um, in terms of – but but then – okay, so that's that's part of the economic aspect to it. But that economic aspect is is sort of – uh, different, right? The the economic aspect that uh, you're asking about is like, you know, what happens to these hotels? Who's doing this? I mean, my guess here is is that Homeland Security or or some agency within 
the United States government is giving a massive subsidy to these hotels to to compensate them for for these things. Which so, which loosely interpreted means that I'm paying for yes, it. Yes, which means taxpayers <laughs> are paying for it. And um and so you know they're they're spending these massive amounts of money and I think this is the this is but this is important is that you know you have to balance the you also have to balance the moral issue with the economic issue. And so you can say like hey look um these people are just coming here for a better life. Like, let's just let them in. But then you also have to wrestle with, okay, like that sounds good, but what are the costs and who's going to bear the costs and how do we figure, uh, and, and how do we figure that out and who determines that who gets to decide? So that leads into a second thing I wanted to ask you about, which is I was thinking about this. It wasn't an original thought. I was watching someone else talk about it and I was like, they're describing my life. So I grew up in North Louisiana. My father, um, who's now 81, my father was the, he was a professor of, he had a doctorate, has a doctorate, um, at, he was a teacher at Louisiana Tech. He taught in the School of Education. He moved up at one point and became the Dean of Education at what is now the University of Louisiana at Monroe. He retired from the Louisiana system, came here, and was the director of head of freshman English before he had some health issues. But regardless, let's go back beyond that. When he's teaching at Louisiana Tech, my mother has a master's in English, and she taught English uh, junior high level and then for a long time at Ruston High School in Louisiana. And I'm getting to something, I promise. They both made respectable incomes. He had a doctorate, so he was at the upper end of the professor salaries. And she had a master's plus, so she was at the upper end of what a high school English teacher would make. But make no mistake, we're not talking about affluent wealth. I thought we were rich as a kid. I never knew we weren't until I started college. And then I was like, oh, we're not. My point is, they were able... Let's see. They had me when I was 20, when they were 27. So they were probably in their mid 30s, early to mid 30s when they moved to Louisiana and they bought a house on Kentucky Avenue. And then a few years later, when my youngest brother was really little and I was probably in grade school, they built a house in a new subdivision, um, kind of behind the elementary school where we, all went to elementary school uh, on a street called Brookwood. And I can remember the first time that I saw the house and it was a big house in my mind. Right. And it was probably, I'm going to guess right around 3000 square feet, had a big driveway, big yard. Um, my dad was able to buy a boat. At one point we had a boat and a camper. Um, we went on vacations we mostly would go to the lake and stuff like that. I promise I'm getting to something. They were able to pay for a house. They didn't do second jobs. They had summer. My, my mother had summers off. My dad really didn't. He, my dad maybe taught a night class in Shreveport or something once a week. But for the most part, we, they were normal eight to fivers, right? And I was thinking about the way that real estate prices are today with mortgage rates going up our debt out of sight, taxes almost certainly to go up because someone has to pay for all this crap that we're doing in our country. And I was saying, your Carson and my Carson are about the same age. Mine turned 17 today. Yours is probably almost 17? 16. 16. Okay, same age. I've got daughters that are 22 and 20. Odds are, they're going to have a hard time affording a home if we keep up like this. Look in this town in Oxford where you and I are sitting right now. There are no houses for 300,000 square feet. They, they don't exist. So where do young, professional, young professionals, where do people who start out as uh, instructors at Ole Miss, maybe let's, say, let's, let's use that example, someone who's got a, 
a master's degree who comes and gets a job as a professor of, I don't know, put him in the business school, wherever, whatever. And maybe his wife is a junior high school math teacher. Okay. They can't afford to live here. This is the problem. This has always been the one thing, right? This is what I've always thought of as the American dream for your children was that your children, assuming they worked hard and they were successful and they made good decisions, would be able to live at least the same station of life that you lived and preferably move up some and even have a better life with more luxury than you had. And we had more than our parents had. That's going away and no one seems to care. And maybe they do care, but no one can say it out loud. Because if you say something out loud, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're a homophobe, you're something. You're something. They attack you as you're something. When that's really all you want for your kids. And through no fault of our kids, I'm not sure that for the very first time in a lot lot of generations, I'm not sure that's going to be possible. Am I overreacting or am I on to something? No, I think there's a huge problem. I think there's two explanations for the housing thing uh one explanation is if you go to any of the major cities i mean i was going to say in the united states but even in europe if you go to any of the major cities uh they don't let you build anything they never let they don't let you build anything uh san francisco is like the obvious example of course now no one wants to live there but uh you know like early 2000s that was everybody wants to go to you know, San Francisco, you know, let go work in tech, like, you know, go, yeah. go work in San Francisco. And the story of the next two decades in San Francisco is like, it's completely unaffordable. Nobody can afford it. Well, why? Well, they never let you build anything. They never let you build anything. And then what happens is when these major cities don't let you build anything, then young professionals say like, well, I can't afford to live there. So instead of moving to, you know, LA or san francisco or something like that i'm gonna find a job in like phoenix or something mm-hmm. right yeah and they but then you have this wave of professionals that start moving into phoenix and then phoenix isn't letting you build either and so then what happens is like well there's excess demand prices start to go up and people start to look for other markets and so the the supply restrictions in these huge major markets sort of start to like push prices up in these other markets because people are choosing to go work in their second or third best geographic location because of how expensive it is that's one thing the other thing is that the monetary and the financial system are completely uh screwed up they're they're entirely screwed up we've essentially had we essentially had an entire decade of zero percent interest rates so when you have interest rates that are that low two things happen one asset prices go up because if um just you know in terms of discounting um, you know, future benefits, you're going to discount them at a lower rate, which means that it's more valuable today. And so you're going to pay more for it. But also those lower rates mean you can borrow more money and you can. And so one of the problems that we have is that like, I see people all the time say like, oh, like median home prices today versus say like 1950 or something. And then they adjust them for inflation. And then they talk about that. But, but the problem is, is it's not sufficient to just adjust them for inflation because part of the reason that the prices have gone up is because the houses have gotten bigger because you don't um a lot of people don't buy a second house they just build a bigger house as their first house or they own a house and they add on to that house and 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 make it even bigger and what facilitates that is that um asset values go up but this also feeds upon itself right because let's say you own a house when interest rates plummet to zero and stay there for years and years and years what do you do? Well, you own this house. Uh, the value of that house is now going up. Meanwhile, you're paying it off. So what do you do? You take out like uh, an equity line or if you've paid off your house, you just, you know, you use it as collateral to buy other things. And, yeah. you know, and, you know, and so you start to own, uh, you know, a lot more assets and you're borrowing at very, very low rates. And so what this is going to tend to do is it's going to tend to distort everything. I mean, what people don't seem to understand is that when you have low, when you have very, very low interest rates, people want to talk about inequality all the time. And they always want to blame it on social factors. And the reason they want to blame it on social factors is because they want to implement their favorite policy of the day, right? Like we just need to enact this law and all the all of our problems would be solved. No, the thing that the, the thing that's driving inequality is that if I'm somebody who has 
uh, a decent amount of wealth and interest rates go from, say, 5% to 0%, I can make myself substantially wealthier in that environment because the value of all of my assets are going up, which means I can use them as collateral to get loans to buy other assets. And as long as I have the cash flow to pay for those things, which I probably do because interest rates are so low, I can just accumulate more and more and more assets. And so the people who are already wealthy when interest rates go to zero become wealthier. The people who have no wealth, they have no collateral to provide. It doesn't matter that assets are worth more because they don't have the collateral to put up. And if you think about housing, I mean, this is really what's going on is that housing is cheap in terms of borrowing, right? In terms of month to month, it was cheap for 10 years, for 10 years. Like, I mean... And that's still happening now. Yeah. And they, they right. were, you know, you were getting a mortgage for like 2.7% or something, um, you know, a couple of years ago. That's completely insane that you would ever be able to see interest rates like that, um, judging by just historical patterns of interest rates. But, you know, the, the implications are sort of obvious is that people are going to borrow more. They're going to build bigger houses and housing prices are going to go up. So do you anticipate that starting next year, when whether we call it a recession or not, but when every single indicator is negative right now for 2024, do you anticipate a run on foreclosures that changes the housing market to some degree? Where well, you have people who are in over their heads on houses and they're going month to month and suddenly they can't afford their mortgage and they're two, three months behind and they're getting foreclosed upon? Well, they'll definitely... There'll definitely be some of that because housing market always includes like speculators. You have people who buy houses just to put them on like Airbnb. And um, and so for those people, if they bought, you know, at the top. Right. They're going to be wiped out. But the because they're going to have no cash flow and the, the cost is going to go down. And so if they don't have cash flow from some other source, they're just, you know, they're going to have to default. So that will definitely happen. But the question is, is like, what is the Federal Reserve going to do? Because if the Federal Reserve is just going to aggressively lower interest rates again, then the, then the whole process just starts over. And and this is what I mean by like the monetary and financial system being so messed up is that we uh, we try to use the central bank as a way to manage the business cycle, but we do this by you know adjusting interest rates to try to increase or decrease economic activity so that we can, you know, stay close to trend. But the issue with doing that is that in the United States, one of the difficulties is the U.S. Treasury security is the global reserve asset of the world. And so... Um, For now. Yes. But we when, when we got rid of the gold standard... Uh, people start, you know, the, the United States essentially through various policies and deals that they made with foreign countries got convinced them to hold, you know, U.S. Treasury bonds as their as their reserve assets. And but in doing so, when that becomes the global reserve asset. The demand for that global reserve asset is increasing at the rate of world economic growth. So if you are not produ- like so. But, but think about the problem here. In order to meet the demand, you have to issue more bonds. Well, how do you issue more bonds? Well, that's taking on more debt in the United States, which means the government has to spend more money. And so you have two options. Like you can just operate your fiscal policy completely independent of the fact that everybody's using this treasury bond. But in which case, if there's excess demand, that's going to put downward pressure on treasuries. And it doesn't matter what the Fed does. Because there's just this downward pressure on treasuries. And if they try to increase interest rates too much, like this is going to cause disruptions in the financial market. Let me interrupt you for a minute. Yeah. Because along those lines, it's the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, it's an author that I read pretty frequently. I, th- I think he's good. You would you may disagree and you would know a lot more. His name is Nick Timorios. He uh, writes for the Wall Street Journal. The headline is, Bond Sell-Off Threatens Hopes for Economy Soft Landing. A few paragraphs. A sudden surge in long-term interest rates to 16-year highs is threatening hopes for an economic soft landing, all the more because the exact triggers for the move are unclear. The Federal Reserve has been raising short-term rates for one and a half years. Those increases are designed to push up longer-term bond yields, combating inflation by slowing the economy. 
but the speed of the latest jump might be a case of be careful what you wish for. It comes as inflation is eased and the Fed has signaled it is nearly done lifting rates. The yields on the 10-year Treasury note rose 0.119 percentage points Tuesday to 4.801, the highest level since the subprime mortgage crisis began in August 2007. On Wall Street, the Dow Industrials fell about 431 points, or 1.3%, giving up all their gains for the year. The S&P 500 declined 1.4%. The technology-heavy NASDAQ composite dropped 1.9%. If the recent climb in borrowing costs, along with the accompanying slump in stock prices and the stronger dollar, is sustained, that could meaningfully slow the U.S. and global economies over the next year. The swiftness of the recent rise also increases the risk of financial market breakdowns. The likeliest causes appear to be a combination of expectations of better U.S. growth and concern that huge federal deficits are pressuring investors' capacity to absorb so much debt. Last year's increases in long-term Treasury yields were driven by market expectations of higher short-term rates as the Fed tightened policy and by investors' demands for extra compensation to hold longer-dated assets because of fears of inflation. Last graph. But neither of these factors appear to be driving higher rates now, which is putting the focus on other influencers. Those include reduced demand for treasuries from foreigners, U.S. banks and domestic portfolio managers who have traditionally purchased government bonds as a hedge against a downturn in stocks and other risky assets. I know that's a lot to go, hey, digest that. But So when we look at interest rates, typically if we see long-term interest rates going up, there's uh, it, these generally reflect longer-term trends. So usually this is either because of expected higher growth in the future or it's because of expected higher inflation in the future. One way to try... Now, there's no way to just look at the yields and know what, what that is. What you have to do is you have to look at other market indicators. The thing that is somewhat odd about these other market indicators is it depends what you look at in, to figure out what's driving this move. So typically, if I see long-term interest rates rising and I want to know, is this inflation or is this expected future growth? Um, I would look at something like the stock market. Because okay. if I look at the stock market, if the stock market is going up and yields are going up, that's a sign that people expect higher growth because they're investing more in stocks and these these yields are rising because people are cycling out of the bonds and into the stock market, right? And so like this is tending to drive these yields up. The So if you look at this, what you see is that yields are going up, the stock market's going down. So that would seem to indicate that actually this is like inflationary. And so people are concerned about inflation. Inflation is pushing up. Our inflation expectations are pushing up. And so, you know, um, and people are worried about the effect on the economy of like, you know, long term higher inflation. And so stocks are selling off. So that would seem to suggest it's people are concerned about inflation and because they're concerned that like the Fed is going to have no choice but to monetize some of this debt. But then the problem there is, is another thing that you can look at is you can look at the dollar and you can see what's happening with the dollar. Well, if the, if you're expecting inflation to occur, you would expect the dollar, uh, you would expect a devaluation of the dollar. But we're not seeing a devaluation of the dollar. We're seeing the dollar getting stronger. And so that seems to suggest, well, maybe it's not inflation. But at the same time, what's going on with the dollar, right? It's the dollar compared to all of these other currencies. So it could be that actually inflation is coming. It's just going to be better in the U.S. than elsewhere. And so the dollar is appreciating relative to those other, uh, to, to those other assets. But, the, but this is what's concerning is that the data is not providing us with clear signs. Normally, you can look at these various indicators and they're all pointing in the right direction if you know what you're looking for. And if you know how to distinguish these things. Right now, we're getting very confusing indicators about what's going on. Um, I think it's very hard to argue that this is a expected growth story because if it's an expected growth story, why would the stock market be declining? Why, you know, um, just because people, you know, like we're seeing, we're, we're essentially seeing a sell-off in bonds and stocks. That's generally a sign that people are moving out of bonds and stocks into even safer things like savings accounts or cash, right? So, right. 
and they're getting their gold bars and hiding them in the in the closets. Yeah, yeah, and so to um and and but again, that could explain why uh, why dollars are are rising if people are actually increasing their demand for you know the actual dollar rather than dollar denominated assets, and so I, I think that on net, like this is a negative sign because we've got these rising rates, we've got declining uh, stock market, and also like that. Um, dramatic increases in the in the value of the dollar tend to coincide with like the the rest of the world's economy uh getting much worse going into a recession like you know that that sort of thing because people in those countries since the dollar is the global reserve currency right like people flock to dollars because that's going to be a more stable store of value than whatever the best asset is that they have there so they you know they're, they're trying to accumulate dollars and so the dollar appreciates relative to everything else this kind of goes into my next thing I want to ask you about. We've not talked about this really. This is episode seven, I think, six or seven. And I don't think we've talked about this. It's it's constant. Ukraine. 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 We hear so much about Ukraine, including that Mitt Romney and Nancy Pelosi's children have major multi-million dollar deals with Ukraine companies. Um, as an aside. Uh <laughs> I mean, Barisma. I mean, who would have, who would have ever known? It's a father's, uh, a father's love, a father's love, a father's love. What won't you do for your child, right? Uh, you know, you buy. I listen. You buy my son's artwork, and I'm going to get you a job on the board. Uh, it, it, we're going to get those things done. But in all seriousness, we have an immigration crisis. We clearly are on the brink of a potential financial crisis in our country. Um standard of living for Americans is down. There's a lot of unsurety. I think this is a fair word, if that's even a word. People are not certain about their futures. People are nervous. And we are just throwing billions upon billions upon billions into this war that no one covers. No one tells us what's going on. We have no idea who's winning or losing or even what the hell they're fighting over. We really don't even know what they're doing. And we just are expected to blindly go, oh, yes. And listen, this isn't just Democrats. I watched part of the second Republican debate. And Nikki Haley, who was a Republican, so this is not Joe Biden bashing. Do that, too, if you'd like. But Nikki Haley, oh, basically, we're not giving them enough. Mike Pence, the former vice president of the United States, we should give them more. We must take care of Ukraine. And so sometimes I just want to go, okay, but why? And when I ask the question, but why, after I'm called a racist and a bigot and a homophobe, no one can answer that question. Why are we throwing all of this money into Ukraine? Are we? Because if it's to prevent World War III, Okay, explain it to me like I'm five, but maybe I'm in. But I have this sinking suspicion, honestly, that this is about nothing other than this country has us, has our political leaders by the short ones and is saying, pay for this or we expose you. Because every time he asks for something, we have a, a little thing that we, have, we do. Well, we can't do that. Well, we can't do that now. Hey, we'll do it. Just wait a minute. And then... Here's all your weapons. Well, eventually he's going to ask for nukes. I'm not sure we're not going to give him the nukes. We give him everything else. He goes around the country, around the world, and everybody parades. His wife looks like she's just, she, she, she looks so depressed. And yet Justin Trudeau is everybody hugging him. And this is, we're celebrating this, this man. And I don't even... I know I'm, I'm I'm ranting a little bit here, but we just keep giving billions upon billions, and then you read these little reports out there that maybe we're giving them even more billions. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. There is perhaps nothing where the discourse is worse than on this topic. Like the public discourse on this topic is uh, you could find better discourse at a kindergarten lunchroom. Literally. Yes. Again, this is an example of um, the failure to separate things like morality from national interests. The argument that you hear uh, told all the time is, this is a country invaded by an aggressive neighbor mm-hmm. and we have to do something about that because they, um, because, you know, they've, they've been imposed upon and this is an, uh, this is, you know, an unacceptable use of force by a large country that has nuclear weapons. And so we have to go in and we have to stand up for them. And that is a perfectly logical, coherent argument, except for the fact that there are lots of other countries that get invaded by other countries, and we don't go into all of those countries. So there has to be something different in this case. Also, what people don't seem to realize when it comes to war is the worst way to figure out why a war is being fought is to listen to people tell you why the war is being fought. Because what they're telling you about why the war is being fought is that's the that's the motivation that's the you know here's why we must do this this is the rallying cry that's not and the rallying cry is not necessarily the reason that you're doing it the question is like what is the national interest here that's at stake yes and what is it about this particular instance that we have to that we have to intervene and they haven't articulated that at all the closest that we actually get to this are that like lately we have people like Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham and, and people like that who come out and say things like, well, we have to do this because uh, one day China might try to invade Taiwan. Okay. And so the idea is like, well, so we have to defend Ukraine because we want to deter China from going into Taiwan. But that's, but, but that's also saying like we have to fight this war so we don't fight a future war. But in which case, maybe we would want to fight the future war instead of this war, or maybe like what you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it makes no, it really it really doesn't make a lot of sense. No, and so it's, and Mitt Romney's in, in all seriousness, Mitt Romney gets canceled in this. His he he gets thrown out for bias because he has a family member making uh, life changing generational money off of business deals in Ukraine. I mean, okay. But you don't get to weigh in at that point. You're biased. Yeah, and I think this is the fundamental. I think this is the fundamental problem: is that it's not clear what the national interest is in uh, in this. Right? It's not clear why the United States would have to be involved. You can make a better case that Europe should just take care of it themselves than the United States being involved. But Europe is completely inept. So you know, maybe that's maybe that's. <laughs> Maybe that's really the explanation is that Europe should be taking care of it, but they're so inept and incapable of doing anything militarily anymore that uh, the that the United States is their only uh, is, is their only hope to actually do what they need to do. But I think that this is constantly framed as a moral issue. I don't um, I, I have no interest in framing it as a moral issue because 
if we're just going to frame everything as a moral issue, I can make the case that we should be invading lots of places or like attacking lots of people or helping lots of people or sending them. A, and the and the point is, is that as an economist, you think about this a little bit differently because as an economist, you you realize that like there are resource constraints. And so if we're using resources to fight a war in Ukraine, even if we're not the ones fighting it, if we're just use, but we're giving them those resources, those are resources we can't use for something else. This is money we can't spend on something else, or this is money that we shouldn't be spending in the first place anyway. It's artillery that we're using there that we might end up needing here. And it's also not clear that this actually deters China, right? Because if this turns into a stalemate or if Russia just, um, you know, ends up decimating Ukraine, doesn't that send a signal to China that like now's the time we'll just go in and take over Taiwan now? You know, I mean, like if that was what you were really afraid of, um, then you should you should be very sure that you can accomplish what you're trying to accomplish and that's the other problem here is that we've never actually clearly stated what the objective is is the objective that we want to push russia back and get them to acknowledge that the the borders that existed before this conflict started are going to be the borders that are enforced at the end of the conflict is that it or is it that we're just going to fight russia we're going to we're going to send weapons so that the ukrainians can fight russia and and just kind of um and create a sort of forever war for Russia like uh, like we had in, you know, Afghanistan or I mean, it, it's very unclear what they're doing um, or what we're doing over the, over there. Like, I understand the moral case. I also don't believe that the moral case is why we're there. I um, I have sympathy for the Ukrainian people. Like, it sucks to be invaded by other countries. That's an understatement of the century. Of course, right? of course. Okay, so, I mean, and that, but that's, but but the problem is, is I have to say that because if I don't say that, then people will but say, it's, well. But it's not a right. lack of sympathy. It's, it's a, it's, throughout the course of our civilization, there have been conflicts. We, we can't get involved in every conflict. And sometimes what alarms me is we get these conversations go from, and if you don't give us all of this stuff, we're eventually going to get to a place where we need your troops. All right, well, now, you, now you're talking about something that's more tangible, right? I can't go into the room next door and, and hug my future earnings, but I can hug my son. And it just feels like where this thing is going is, and look, we have an election coming up, and just, Stuff's going to eventually, I guess, get talked about. Where it feels like things are building. Trump's winning in polls right now, which has to scare the ever living hell out of the Democrats. I mean, they, they every everything they throw at him, he just keeps winning. We might touch on that for one second before we go. But if the party in power stays in power, and we continue to fund this war over there, and it doesn't ever get settled, and there is no peace, and there is no compromise, there is no treaty. At some point, the conflict is going to get to a point where there's going to be conversations about sending troops from other countries into that land. And that's where, it, pardon my French, but shit gets real. Yeah. Well, the other problem here is, is if you're trying to figure out what the, na- the national interest is that's motivating this, you have to ask yourself, like, why does the Western world want Ukraine in like NATO so bad? Why um, is this the conflict that we have to put our foot down for? Mm -hmm. And if you're just looking at it like that and you're thinking about it objectively and you're trying to figure out what it is that that is in the national interest, it's hard to imagine that it's not something like all of the contracts that U.S. oil and gas companies have in Ukraine to provide natural gas to Western Europe. And... That would make sense as to why you would want them in NATO, because if 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 you have those investments and Ukraine becomes a part of NATO, that deter, that deters Russia from invading them because that would trigger a war with all of the countries in NATO. And so maybe they want that because they're trying to protect these um, these private interests of American companies in uh, you know who are who are operating in Ukraine because they think that this is going to um, because, you know, by keeping Russia out and making sure that Russia is not involved, like then, you know, that, that provides safe harbor for these 
companies to operate. And I'm not saying that that's what it is, but like when you start thinking about all of the reasons that it could possibly be, that's at least got to be one of them. And when you consider how many uh, politically connected people are connected to businesses that are operating in and around Ukraine, it's just, it's kind of amazing, right? Like you wouldn't think that there would be this many people around positions of power who would just have all of these random investments and, and uh, positions <laughs> with, with all of these uh, companies. Right? I mean, prior to about 2016, you hardly ever heard about Ukraine. Yeah. And suddenly Ukraine has dominated the, the, our international relations for the better part of a decade. It's doesn't feel like a coincidence. No, there has to be some sort of interest there that we're trying to protect. It can't just be democracy. It can't just be that, you know, this is wrong. Um, there are many non-democracies that spring up all around the world, and there are many people who are uh, invaded or attacked by neighbors that we don't intervene in. And so there, there has to be some, there has to be some explanation for what's going on. And, you know, what's communicated to us is not, is, is not very good. And, and frankly, it's not very good because let's face it, the people who uh, talk the most about foreign policy in our, in our daily lives, these, these people are not the brightest people. These, we're not sending our best when we talk about these people, like the neocons have like been, these are people who have been wrong about, you know, most things. Uh, these are people who have overseen more poor foreign policy failures than than successes. And so the idea that this is who we want to be taking advice from or listening to the logic of, it, it kind of stretches the imagination. I'll give the Wall Street Journal credit. They try to cover the Ukraine thing. I, I went to the world section of, of Wall Street Journal just momentarily ago, and it was Russia withdraws Black Sea fleet vessels from Crimea base after attacks. Um. U.S. since seized Iranian ammunition to Ukraine. Um, Russian journalist who protect who protested Ukraine war on live TV given eight and a half year sentence. It's an interesting place, Russia. Um, but for the most part, we don't know what's happening in that war. Not the way that if you think back to the Iraqi war, we always had a pretty good idea of kind of what was going on. It's one of the reasons I think after a while we're like, why are we doing this? This is a, you know, there was, we had video of, of the war. We remember watching CNN, you'd watch the Bernard Shaw covering the war that, you know, you, we, we saw what was going on. We don't ever see that. It's a war that just happens in absentia. We, we know nothing about it. We just know that we're funding it. Uh, along those lines, kind of winding down, Pope Francis, I don't know if you saw this. 12-page document, Pope Francis scolds the United States over climate change in action. He blasts climate change deniers, particularly in America. He warned that the world is in trouble due to climate change and criticized the United States for excessive consumption. He released a shorter document focusing on climate change and the harm it causes, including the impact on the poor. He also mentioned concerns about artificial intelligence. His fury, it was noted, was mainly against the United States. So we are uh, we have upset Pope Francis for our consumption and our refusal to uh, drive more electric vehicles. I suppose. I say this as a Catholic. I'm, I'm, I'm buying some solar panels as we speak. <laughs> I'm ordering online in case you're wondering what I'm typing. I'm, I'm getting that done. I say this as a Catholic. Uh, I think that he should spend more time cleaning up the corruption within the Catholic Church and less time commenting on every single political issue of our time. I mean, I don't think there's a single thing there um, that he didn't comment on. Did he have a did he have a statement on Taylor Swift attending the Chiefs game or I mean, the this he said that he was fond of Travis and he appreciated Travis's uh, relationship with Pfizer. Absolutely. And that he thought it was neat that uh, shortly after giving his two shots that uh, Travis caught a touchdown pass against the Chicago Bears. No, I think it's really depressing because if you go back to like the Middle Ages, like, you know, popes were making kings like, you know, bow to them in the snow. And now um, we have popes that just uh, give the same sort of uh, kooky left wing arguments that you get from anybody else. Um, 
in your daily life. You can find, you know, you can find the same level of commentary on YouTube or, uh, you know, anywhere else. I like, it, it's frustrating to me because that, uh, I, I don't understand why he feels the need to be political all the time. Um, I guess that it's, you know, some level of virtue signaling or something like that. Maybe he mm-hmm. thinks it's good for the Catholic church or something, but the, you know, it's hard to take, it, it's hard to take them seriously because, you know, the, he has adopted all these left-wing positions. I don't understand how he could possibly have adopted these positions because the a lot of the policies that he talks about and a lot of the problems that he talks about, these are actually things that in his own country he witnessed, like the destruction created by a lot of these like socialist policies and things like that, and he'll come out and just condemn capitalism all the time. Um, I, you know, I don't know. It's frustrating. I, uh, I wish that he would, uh, you know, spend more time, you know, talking about the Catholic church and the importance of faith and cleaning up corruption in the Catholic church, instead of being just like the basic lefty commentator that, you know, is on every channel. All right. Last thing we save, we save politics for the end. Really? Everything's political, but save this for the end. And for the people who say I never use a uh, left leaning source, the source here is PBS, PBS NewsHour. I think most would agree that PBS is left-leaning. 14% of voters, Josh, say they dislike both of the leading candidates for president, according to the latest PBS NewsHour NPR Marist poll. Again, PBS NewsHour NPR Marist. That's more than four times the number who were dissatisfied with President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump last election day. Biden has a slight lead over Trump, his predecessor and current frontrunner for the Republican nomination, with 49% of registered voters saying they'd choose the incumbent and 47% siding with Trump, according to the latest poll. Independents favor Trump by an eight-point margin. The race remains virtually unchanged from August and is inside the poll's margin of error. Uh, While both candidates have a commanding lead with their respective partisan voters, 51% of voters in this poll have a negative impression of Biden, 56% dislike Trump. Voters who dislike both Trump and Biden, the double haters, Republican strategist Whit Ayers said, become a swing voter group that both parties will spend significant time and money trying to win over. Uh, Within the last couple of weeks, there was an ABC Washington Post poll, which was an outlier. But it had Trump leading by 10 points over, uh, over Biden. If you go back and look in 2016 and in 2020, Trump never led in the polls. Never. Not against Hillary Clinton. Not against Joe Biden. Now he's either within the margin of error or he's leading in polls. What do you make of that at this point? You mean Speaker Trump? <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> um, he said he'd do it. He said he'd do whatever the country needs him to do. And yeah. I was like, well, number one, I don't know how the hell that happens, but I, I mean, if you just want entertainment, sign me up, I suppose. CNN secretly in favor of it, even though they'll tell you that they're not there. Oh, favor. everyone's in favor of it. They, 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 the, the media, this is the part that I always laugh at the, at the, the left who are incensed about Donald Trump. I'm like, well, you know, if you really wanted him to kind of go away, you should talk to your media companies that you support so diligently because they are the ones that follow him everywhere because he fuels them. He is what's keeping them in business. They hate him, but they love him. They they love, hate, hate, love him. Their emotions for Trump run deep, and it also allows the media, and this is the truth, it allows the media to not focus on Biden. I think, I mean, I think that this is all inevitable result of like what's going on. We talked about people can't afford to buy houses. Uh, you go to San Francisco, it's filled with homeless people. They just openly do drugs on the street. The same thing's true in Philadelphia. Um, a decade of low interest rates has exacerbated inequality, uh, which creates political unrest. 
our president of the United States' biggest concern seems to be tripping and falling before the next election. The federal government is giving billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine all the time. They're promising that, you know, people who paid student loans never have to pay student loans ever again. We'll always just kick the can. Just keep just just don't send in your payment this month. Just don't send it in. We'll we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. The every single institution over the last, you know, 13 years, 14 years has been revealed to be corrupt or inept from the financial crisis through COVID. They can't get anything right. Frankly, it's hard to imagine how um, the current president wouldn't be more unpopular. And you can say, well, you know, and and part of it might be because, you know, like the the front runner for the other side is Donald Trump and people also don't like him. And so, like, they're not going to say that they don't like Joe Biden because they're afraid that means they like Donald Trump or something like that. But. But I mean, I I don't see any like it's not morning in America. That, you know, that was the Reagan slogan. Well, yeah. it's, it's not morning in America. Uh, you look around and uh, there there are tons of problems. And it seems like we don't have the people in place that can actually fix any of these problems. At least not demonstrated by what they've done or what they've tried to do. And so, you know, people want something to change. That's the whole reason we got Trump in the first place. You know, people like, I, I mean, an under uh, an, an underappreciated aspect of you know, uh, of Trump is like, there was a lot of crossover between like Obama voters and Trump voters. And like the media could never understand this. They can't, they can't figure it out at all. It's not hard to understand. It's not at all hard to understand. What was it? Obama came in promising hope and change in the middle of a financial crisis. How many of those people, how many stories of fraud in the financial system did you read? Uh, You know, um, you can probably find a handful just on a simple Google search. How many of those people got prosecuted? We bailed them all out. Yeah. Um, we bailed them all out. How many people lost their homes? Okay, now compare that to how many banks went out of business. This, you know, people were promised hope and change, and they didn't get hope and change. They got the same old thing. And so you get this bulldozer who comes through, and and like, I mean, Dave Chappelle had a great routine about Trump. He basically said, look, like, you guys don't understand. Like, I live in Ohio. You talk to people in Ohio. Like, Trump did something amazing. Like, he essentially um, came out and he said, you guys think the system is rigged? Well, let me tell you, it is rigged and I benefited from it. And then he turns around and he goes back in his big house. And the, and so the American people are like, oh, see, I told you the whole time. Like, this is, you know, this is what's going on. Something needs to be fixed. The, you know, the, it, it's corrupt. Uh, you know, there, there's there's so much corruption and um, and they put their faith in him because, you know, what else were they going to do? I mean, what else were they going to do? They, you know, they knew Hillary Clinton wasn't going to clean up any of any of these problems. Yeah, they viewed her as part of the swamp. Yeah, and so like the, you know, th- there are so many negative things. There's there's not. We, I grew up in an era where you know, like the, uh, where where there was a lot of optimism. And there was a lot of um, econo- like uh, American exceptionalism. Yes, that's the term. Yeah. And where where is the American exceptionalism now? I mean, like um, our institutions uh, are all ideological and corrupt. And if they're not uh, corrupt, they're probably inept. And people want something done about this. People want their government to work. Um, and they want their government to spend money. I mean, like think about how many people, how many people are dying of drug overdoses. This is like, and this, this was a thing when Trump got elected, everybody was like, well, maybe this is what explains Donald Trump is you have all of these like, uh, poor white areas where people are dying of uh, drug overdoses and maybe that's what's really going on. And then that just went away. But if you look at the data, the people are still dying. They're still, they're still dying of drug overdoses like this, like, you know, uh, there, there's still a crisis related to fentanyl. Nobody does anything about it. Mm-mm. We got billions of dollars for Ukraine. We can't, you know, we can't do anything for, you know, we got billions of dollars for Ukraine. We give $500 million to the Hawaiians to, you know, who, whose houses all just completely burned to the ground to ash. And people look at that and they say, you know, I, I used to, and, and, and as an economist, I used to get frustrated by arguments like that where people would say, oh, well, 
that's a false dichotomy, right? It's not a choice between giving money to Ukraine or giving it to Hawaii. But, but it is. But but the thing is, is that. But it is a choice. Yeah. But but the thing is, is like it doesn't matter whether that's the actual choice. It doesn't matter whether that's the actual choice. The the point is, is that the only way that you can possibly understand the value of hundreds of billions of dollars is to compare two uses of hundreds of billions of dollars. Precisely. That's the only way that you can do that. Precisely. And so even if the the actual choice that's being presented is not the true choice and and that that would never be a choice the comparison is still valid and the comparison is still valid because that's the only way we can understand these things because it's fair for me to ask what if you took the pick a number 200 billion dollars that we've sent to ukraine and instead had applied that to fighting the fentanyl crisis and the border what would that have looked like if we had poured those resources into that would it have fundamentally changed things? I, I don't know, right? I don't know. But I could I could do some sort of a research and hypothesize as to what that would or would not have meant in terms of lives saved to fentanyl, uh, the, the, how much fentanyl was coming across the border, how much the border was cleaned up, how the border being cleaned up impacted economic. We could do a lot of studies on that, and you could say, well, this is what it would mean. Is that good bad is it worth doing right that's that that's well that, the point is there should be a debate that's what that's the we, debate we live in a we live in a democracy and the question you know can be look do we want to spend money on this do we want to spend money on this or should we actually just be spending less money like well, how is the like what, what are we you know like what are we should be debating our options we should be thinking about the trade-offs involved in all of these different things and because the numbers are so big josh they're unfathomable right i can't i can't really fathom Two point something trillion dollars. That's that's more money than I can really imagine. What, but what does that mean to the debt? You see the debt just spiraling. We're now paying more in interest a year than we are for our military operations in a year. Well, what does that mean in twenty more years of that? What does that mean to our children, to our grandchildren? What does that mean the the country that they inherit? Do they inherit anything? What does it mean? And because that is so baffling to the human mind, really with the exception of people like you who are beyond exceptional from an intelligence standpoint, people just go, I don't get that. I, I can't think that that, and they just go, you know what? I'm just going to function, fo- focus on what's for dinner tonight. I'm going to focus on getting up tomorrow morning, which is a perfectly understandable reaction to that. But over the course of time, these problems do pile up and you look up and now we're looking up and people are going, Oh, well, we have an economic crisis. Well, it didn't just start last Thursday. This is something that's been building for a long time, and it's been ignored, and we've been throwing money into other things. And it's where when people go, why do you keep talking about politics? It's because, well, politics matter. Policy matters. Well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't talk about politics at all because it would function. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I mean, I mean, sure, there would be people on CNN or there would be, you know, uh, talk radio or something like that. But the thing is, is that people but i go back to when i was growing up in the 70s and 80s we really didn't talk about politics that much i mean you talked about the the watergate thing happened right so it was a scandal but we're really talking about politics because for the most part people lived their lives on friday afternoon when my dad got off work and my mom got off work we put the boat on the back of the van and we drove to lake darbone and we camped for the weekend and we went water skiing we didn't talk about politics well when things are going well People don't have as much to talk about. Like the reason that people have become politics obsessed is that there just seems to be so much wrong and nobody's doing anything about it. So everybody wants to talk about it and everybody wants to know, like, what should we do or what are we doing wrong or what could we do differently or, you know, why, why are things like this? And it's just, you know, it's dangerous also because we're creating all of these fragilities right we're creating a fragility in the economy by racking up so much debt we're creating fragility in our political system by not being responsive to people's uh, demands and what people want and generally when you create fragilities something eventually breaks and so people should be talking about these things they should be caring about these things they should be pushing back on a lot of what's going on because they because they you know, they want the people who are in charge to actually take charge and actually solve problems. And instead, you know, we just 
have people who keep sort of stumbling through their their jobs and there's there's apparently like no punishment i mean that's the other problem is like it doesn't it certainly doesn't seem like a meritocracy it's not like the the people who are doing poorly um in these government institutions are being pushed out or fired or whatever like that you know these things just carry on yeah i mean diane feinstein did finally die i mean eventually everyone will die well, but that's also the problem. Like we shouldn't. Of course she like, vote, I think she voted the day after she died. So that was pretty cool. They. <laughs> they I mean, that's a, that was, that's pretty cool. It's impressive. That is. If the, you think about it's, it's if, commitment. If you it's think commitment. about that, that's that's commitment. This generation today would never have that. No, they would no, never no, vote no. the day after they died. Because <laughs> uh-uh. they're, they're lazy. And well, that's the thing is you should like you shouldn't have people have been debating whether she should retire for a long time, and. You know, she died in office. I think most. I think a lot of these people just plan to die in office. They just they're going to ride it out as long as long as they possibly can, and that's also part of the problem. But well, they're you know, all accumulating a level of wealth in public office that is emblematic of corruption on both sides. By the way, Democrats, Republicans, both. I mean, they 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 go they go to Washington as quasi regular people. They leave as multimillionaires even though the salary that they make in the area in which they live is not that of the wealthy, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that they're corrupt, that they're bought and paid for. It's, I mean, I'm not a, the biggest Matt Gates fan in the world, but when he said that in, on the house about you're all bought and paid for, and they all went, boo, he's like, oh, shut up. You are. Look at you. I mean, come on. And he's right. Well, the, the funny thing about that is you always get the retort from people is that they say, well, what does their spouse do for a living? <laughs> And then, like, their spouse is always, like, in finance or something, right? But, you know... I mean, Paul of, Pelosi is, like, he's a better trader than Warren Buffett. But they've never, you know, like, <laughs> none of these people... Here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. They've never married a bad trader. No. They've never married a bad trader. Mm-hmm. They've never ma- married a bad... Uh, they, they've never had just, like, a the finance guy who just can't make it up the ladder. That They don't... that. <laughs> He doesn't seem to be the, you know, that doesn't seem to be the marriage material. It's American exceptionalism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's what, that's what we've replaced American exceptionalism <laughs> with. We've replaced it with media, with mediocrity and, uh, and, you know, just corruption, uh, stripping the, stripping the country for parts. As always, Josh, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. No problem. It's a lot of fun.